Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Abide, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for April 29, 2018. Once, when my daughter was two years old, her grandfather took her out for ice cream. After parking his car and lifting my daughter out of her toddler's seat, my dad offered her his thumb. You have to hold it tight until we're inside the ice cream shop, okay, he told her. This is a busy street. My daughter took one look at his outstretched hand, wrapped her left fist around her own right thumb, and said, No thank you, I can hold my own. No thank you, I can hold my own might be the perfect slogan for Western Christianity. We are products of a contemporary culture that celebrates the individual and distrusts the communal. We often represent the Christian life as a one-on-one -on -one transaction between a single believer and her God. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. We put a lot of stock in our personal spiritual experiences, my prayer life, my worship, my epiphany. If we do align ourselves with a larger Christian community, we generally do so with a consumer mindset, trusting that we're free to join up and free to quit as personal preference dictates. We are, in other words, proud lone rangers. We believe in pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and encouraging others to do the same. We struggle not to view dependence as moral weakness. We cherish our personal space and feel claustrophobic when other people press too close. We believe, of course, in loving our neighbors, but we feel most comfortable loving them from a distance, or at least with one eye trained on the nearest exit. Given this context, I can't imagine a more countercultural or more challenging vision of the Christian life than the one Jesus offers us in this week's lectionary reading. I am the vine and you are the branches, he tells his disciples. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. If those words aren't blunt enough, he continues, Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Burnt? Gulp. Goodbye, Lone Ranger. Hello, branches? I'm not much of a gardener, but I have a potted jasmine vine growing on my patio. It's fragrant and beautiful, but here's the thing. It doesn't care one whit about personal space. It's a messy, curly, jumbly thing. It stretches, it spreads, and it invades. It grows in all kinds of tangled-up directions, and its densely interwoven tendrils are just about indistinguishable from each other. If this is Jesus' metaphor for the spiritual life, then I think Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber says it best. Christianity is a lousy religion for the I'll-do-it-myself set. We are meant to be tangled up together. We are meant to live lives of profound interdependence, growing into, around, and out of each other. There's pain and trauma involved when we separate such that the fate of each individual branch affects the vine as a whole. In this metaphor, dependence is not a matter of personal morality or preference. It's a matter of life and death. Branches that refuse to cling to the vine die. My problem, of course, is that I don't believe this. I don't want to believe it because it's inconvenient and offensive. It implies that my life is not my own, that my choices affect people I don't even know, that I'm bound to the community of God's people, whether such boundedness suits my temperament or not. And worse, it requires me to hold two seemingly contradictory truths in perpetual tension. One, that the point of my Christian life isn't me, my growth, my catharsis, my contributions, my achievements. I'm inextricably connected to a larger whole. And apart from that whole, my spirituality, profound and precious though it might feel to me, is without value. Apart from the vine, I'm not only barren, I'm dead. In other words, I'm not the fruit in this metaphor. I'm not supposed to be the end product of my own spiritual life. And two, that I matter more than I can possibly imagine. That every branch matters more than I can possibly imagine. 
because the fruitfulness of God's vine is no trivial thing. It is the life and nourishment of the world. <clears throat> I read a little bit about grapevines this week. Apparently, the best grapes are produced closest to the central vine, where the nutrients are the most concentrated. To cut myself off from the vine, then, is to diminish my fruitfulness. It is to deny the world the fruit of Christ's saving, healing, and transforming love. I titled this essay, Abide, because it's the key word in Jesus' metaphor, appearing eight times in this lection. If God is the vine grower, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, what should we do? We have only one task, to abide. To tarry, to stay, to cling, to remain, to depend, to rely, to last, to persevere, to commit, to continue, to tolerate, to endure, to acquiesce, to accept, to hang in there for the long haul, to make ourselves at home. It's a tricky word, passive on the one hand and active on the other. To abide is to stay rooted in one place, but it is also to grow, to change, and to multiply. It's a vulnerable-making verb. If we abide, we'll get pruned. It's a risky verb. If we abide, we'll bear fruit that others will see and taste. It's a humbling verb. If we abide, we'll have to accept nourishment that is not of our own making. And it's a relentlessly communal verb. If we abide, we will have to coexist with our fellow branches. We will have to live a life that is messy, crowded, tangled, and gorgeous. A life that's deeply rooted and wildly fertile. I can't imagine that there was ever a time when Jesus' followers found the metaphor of the vine easy to apply in daily life. But I also think that it's especially challenging to do so now. We live in bitterly divided times. We have good reasons to be cautious and self-protective, even within the church. It's hard in our self-promoting culture to confess that we are lost and lifeless on our own. But our glory lies in surrender, not self-sufficiency. <clears throat> my dad and I had a good laugh over my daughter's attempt at independence when he brought her home from their outing. Needless to say, he didn't allow his two-year-old granddaughter to hold her own hand while crossing the street. He told her she had to grasp his thumb or else miss out on the ice cream. In typical toddler fashion, my daughter threw a tantrum, waited for a few minutes to see if my dad would relent. He didn't, and finally grabbed hold of his hand, not letting it go until she got her ice cream. If only we would surrender our ferocious independence with no more than a quick tantrum. If only we would consent to see reality as it truly is. Not that Jesus is sitting around waiting for us to get organized, but that he has already started nourishing the world through us. I am the vine, he told his disciples. You are the branches. It's a done deal. Meaning that whether we like it or not, our lives are bound up in his and in each other's. Meaning that the only true life we will live in this world is a life we consent to live in relationship, messy and entangled though it might be meaning that the only fruit worth sharing with the world is a fruit we produce together. Yes, it's difficult, but it's also easy. Remember that our vine is true and our vine grower good. This is what we were made for. Abide. For books this week, we review The Climate Swerve, Reflections on Mind, Hope, and Survival by Robert J. Lifton. <clears throat> for the last 60 years, the American psychiatrist Robert Lifton has studied the causes and consequences of the most violent traumas of our age, most notably Hiroshima, Auschwitz, and Vietnam. His 20 books have included the National Book Award winner Death in Life, Survivors in Hiroshima. He helped to pioneer the field of psychohistory. Now, almost 92 years old, he might have saved his best effort for last. This newest book explores climate change, which he considers the most demanding and unique psychological task ever faced by humankind. That is, how do we swerve, change our thinking, stir our creative imagination, and take actions to something that is killing us just as surely as nuclear war, genocide, and terrorism have threatened us. This book isn't about the science of climate change, although he has lots to say about scientists, both pro and con. 
but rather about our mindset or collective awareness regarding climate change. He begins with the absurdity that humanity itself, merely by the way we have chosen to live, is a single lethal factor of civilization. In particular, drawing upon his previous work, he appealed to the apocalyptic twins of nuclear weapons and climate change, as those were experienced on the Marshall Islands, where from 1946 to 1958 the American government conducted 67 atmospheric nuclear bomb tests, one of which unleashed the equivalent of 1,000 Hiroshima bombs on the region, and the largest detonation of any kind have taken place on the face of the earth. Somehow we have gotten used to this nuclear and climactic apocalyptic. We numb ourselves to what he calls a malignant normality. There are bad actors here, but also good ones, like witnessing professionals who call us to a more life-affirming way to live. Of special note, in his opinion, are the Rockefeller Brothers Fund that divested its holdings from fossil fuel companies, and the 2015 Paris Climate Conference, which he considers a stunning declaration and expression of species unanimity. We should resist feelings of helplessness. In a swerve, shift, or deviation from the climate status quo, we should reject dread, embrace hope, and take creative actions while we still can. For movies this week, we review Blue Planet 2. <clears throat> it's hard to believe, but it was 17 years ago when the original BBC nature documentary Blue Planet premiered. That original series was comprised of eight 50-minute episodes. Blue Planet was followed by the BBC's 11-episode Planet Earth, which was eventually shown in 130 countries. In October of 2017, the BBC debuted its new seven-episode sequel to the original in the UK, which was followed by its American premiere in January of 2018 on BBC America. Filming the new series took four years and 125 expeditions in 39 countries. Like the original, Blue Planet 2 is narrated and presented by David Attenborough, who is now 91 years old, and explores the planet's marine life. You can only imagine how camera technology and techniques have changed in the past 17 years, enabling Blue Planet 2 to feature newly discovered creatures that have never been seen or filmed before, like the hairy-chested hoff crabs, snub-finned dolphins that spit water, and a tool-using tuskfish. As you would expect, Blue Planet 2 also explores our human impact on the oceans, like plastics, coral bleaching, and global warming. Once again, three cheers for the BBC's Natural History Unit for its state-of-the-art television production. And finally, for poems this week, we offer Scott Cairns' Possible Answers to Prayer. Your petitions, though they continue to bear just the one signature, have been duly recorded. Your anxieties, despite their constant, relatively narrow scope and inadvertent entertainment value, nonetheless serve to bring your person vividly to mind. Your repentance, all but obscured beneath the burgeoning yellow fog of frankly more conspicuous resentment, is sufficient. Your intermittent concern for the sick, the suffering, the needy poor, is sometimes recognizable to me, if not to them. Your angers, your zeal, your lip-smackingly righteous indignation toward the many whose habits and sympathies offend you, these must burn away before you'll apprehend how near I am, with what fervor I adore precisely these, the several who rouse your passion. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 29, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.